Todd Gloucester. Welcome to Fishtown Local on a double event, Cataclysmic Wednesday here in Gloucester. That's right, the confluence of two meteoric events, the snowstorm and nor'easter bearing down on Gloucester for the second time in seven days. Winds approaching 60 miles an hour. The windmills are spinning in their excitement. Oh, yes, we had huge tides and storms, winds, snow, rain, and my engineer, Jim Capillo. <laughs> and so I wanted to thank him in advance for sitting through the other momentous event, which which is my first Fishtown local podcast, done entirely by myself. Ha, <laughs> suckers. Anyhow, I figured I would turn that fickle finger of interrogation inward to see what really makes the grand master of irrelevancy tick, or talk, as the case may be. Anyway... I figured I would begin where I begin with all my guests, since I am both guest and host. How did you get to Gloucester, Gordon, you carpetbagger? Well, it turns out I'm not a carpetbagger. I came to Gloucester in my first year of birth, in 1950. Yes, the dinosaurs still roamed the earth in 1950. Ah, yes, the dinosaurs. <laughs> anyway, I got here. Thank God they didn't eat me. But I came as a zero-year-old, actually a couple of months uh, into my time, in 1950, and I've been here on and off ever since. For the first, mm, let's call it 17 years, I came only as a summer person. But I came every summer. And I would get to stay two weeks, but it's a classic case. Uh, my parents were divorced, and my mother lived in New York, and my father lived in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. But the way court set it up in then, um, in those days, um, the uh, parental rights were prescribed by the judge. And we had to spend a month every summer in 103-degree Virginia on my father's uh, parents' farm, which incidentally was Chief Justice John Marshall's original home. Yes, very historical. And I did get a taste of farming, but it was a gentleman farm. And we, my brother, who's a year older than I am, we would play on all the machines. And they had this big bucket system up on a cable, which slid the feed around. So they could just put the, um, the protein feed in for the cows. And they were all in their little feeders. A very interesting little, it was almost like a little cable car that went around. And we would, of course, ride in it. And the other one would push. <laughs> but... Unfortunately, that wasn't the farm that we spent most of our time. I was forced into going to my cousin's farm about 30 miles away. No hope available there, for my cousins were all older than we were, and they were country cousins. And here were their New York City cousins, Jock and Gordon Baird, had come. And so what was the thing to do? Beat the living crap out of them any way they could. Whether it was putting you in a pasture and said, you stand there, and when the horses all run at you, be sure to stay where you are. So, because if you let them go through, you're going to have to go retrieve them. And of course, we'd stand there and they'd all be laughing their heads off. They'd stampede, you know, 22 horses at us. Oh, 
course I'd run for the nearest tree. And then bam, 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 bam. They were just the meanest people. And incidentally, they all don't live on farms anymore. I live on a farm now, and they all moved to Washington, D.C., where they live in cities and apartments, <laughs> which I reminded them with great mirth. They would do things like there would be 300 hay bales of theirs in the hay barn, and they would make these Egyptian kind of tombs, like pyramids, through the hay bales. And it was a thing you'd crawl through, and it was very scary. There was no light in there. And of course, they would always have the thing, so it had a keystone bale. And when you were uh, right in the middle of the thing, 30 bales down, they'd pull out the keystone, and the whole thing would collapse on you to great hilarity. Oh, yes. But I will say, years and years later, 30 years later, I remember the meanest cousin of them all, the one closest to my age, he'd come to see me, and he was really a nice guy by then, and into real estate. And I remember we were walking out in the back fields there on Eastern Point, and he was out in front of me, and I let him get in front of me, and God started running at him, and I tackled him full speed, face down, right into the muck. And he's going, what the heck is that for? And I said, for all that mean stuff you did to me all those years ago in the 60s, he left payback. He said, he laughed and laughed. He said, you are right, man. Go ahead, kick me too if you want. We were awfully mean to you, weren't we? But you might say, that toughened me up. (laughs) So the reason I brought all that up is that we were only allowed to come to Gloucester for two weeks. And it was always in August. And so we had to spend at least four weeks, sometimes five weeks, in 103 degree. And we were only two weeks in Gloucester. So it was only natural. Uh, My grandmother was here. And um, it was only natural that when I graduated from college that I moved to Gloucester. Because you always want what you can't have. And I was never allowed to be. We were never allowed to be here. My brother lives in Gloucester, too. We're New Yorkers and so and Virginiaites. And so, um, again, it's one of those human nature rules, which is you want mostly what you can't have. (laughs) And I've been here ever since because who can ever beat the combination of density, low, housing, interesting, people, even more interesting. Um, That is Gloucester. And there's just such a wonderful amount of freedom, and yet you're still sort of connected to the intellectual, emotional, and cultural grid. And not too close to Boston, not too far away. But so here I was, here in 1950, as a little baby. Isn't that cute, playing on the beach? Mm -hmm. And um, it was Raymond's Beach uh, down there on Easter Point, right before the beach that is before the lighthouse. Two beaches from the lighthouse. That's called Raymond's Beach. I am actually the last of the Raymonds, and the Raymonds are the last of the old families on Eastern Point. So the interesting, stupid, funny thing is that Hippie Gordo, Mr. Troublemaker, Mr. Always got his thumb on the wrong side of the pot. Yes, I am the old family on Eastern Point now. Now, I can't say I'm the old money because we were always, you know, land uh, rich, money poor. <laughs> but we were able to keep our land. Uh, and uh, toast to me, the separation, the privacy, and the land is the ultimate wealth. Don't have a ton of dough. Everybody thinks I do, but I don't. But we do have a ton of land, so that's really nice. We've deed restricted most of it, so it's off limits. However, the point is, when I got out of college finally in 1972, I moved directly to here. And I was here, and as everybody knows in Gloucester, you've got to have your house, your mate, and your job set 
before you get to Gloucester because it's highly unlikely you're going to meet him here. So I had the house part set, but I didn't have the job or the mate. And, of course, I did some mating, <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, matey, um, but, you know, how those things are, young 20s, uh, were also, you know, frivolous, it just didn't work out, and thank God it didn't. Um, so I uh, worked the way everybody does. I was in a rock and roll band for years, and then I got a, tried to get some sales jobs. And fortunately, I was, I was lucky enough to stumble upon this ad in a music title uh, where this guy claimed to have a music referral service. So if you were a drummer, which I was, and you were looking for a band that was looking for a drummer, it was a big registry, and you put your name in, and so did they, and then they'd come and see who they have and audition you. The only problem was, I signed up. I went into the guy saying and met this guy. But I was the first guy in the system. <laughs> so I asked about the bands, and he was going, well, that part will be coming up soon. So it was totally a bust and a scam, and I should have realized it then because the more I talked to this guy, this guy was such a talker. And he probably taught me a lot of what I know about both uh, talent in terms of being persuasive, um, using logic and uh, good sense and good humor. But he was also a crook. He was printing a magazine called Musician's Guide. It was a little TV guide-sized magazine in Boston. And right away, after talking, talking, talking to him, he said, hey, how would you like a job? Actually, even before that, I said, hey, I want a job. And I'll start at the bottom. I'll do whatever I have to do to get there. And the guy goes, you're hired. And I, he gave me the most impossible problem to solve. I had to get on the phone. And first, he had me calling from my house, paying for the calls. And in those days, it wasn't universal. You called Missouri. That was a long-distance call. That was six bucks. But eventually, I said, no, and we'll do it in here. So I would commute in and out. And I had to call these music stores. And basically, the pitch was they would give me $120 up front. And we would send them 100 of these little magazines every month. And it would have all these ideas on how to get all this new technology integrated into your band. So this was something that wasn't on the market. Sounds great. And I got, but it was an impossible sell. You want us to front 120 bucks? We're never going to hear from you again. I mean, these were how they, I, this was Missouri and Mississippi. I was calling all over the country. Well, I was, quote, cold calling. And if you know what that is, it's just looking up the music stores in the book and call, you know, can I talk to the manager, please? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, right. So I had to develop all sorts of tricks to get around their defenses just to get the guy on the phone. But I was pretty persuasive, and I started selling some of these guys. Eventually, they did a monthly billing thing where they could pay COD, pay a little more. So at least the people would take a chance that they knew that if they paid, they'd have their magazines. Well, of course, the magazines sat around on the counter, a hundred of these things, and they got, I still got the one from six months ago, you know, the whole box. You know, so these dealers, after a while, were saying, I want my money back. But I was going, so then my boss, Mr. Scamaramas there, he said, oh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to print your name. We're going to get a stamp made, and we're going to stamp each music store's name. So it said, this free giveaway magazine, parenthesis, to seed all these ideas about equipment they could buy from your music store, is given to you courtesy of 
E.U. Wurlitzer or Mike's Guitars. So there was a different one for each. So, of course, because we were a tiny shop and because I sold them, the guy had talked me into doing all the stamping and all the packing. And I had to do all the dealer's orders and all the billing and all the receipts and receiving. So it was absolutely ridiculous. And I was supposedly making about $30 a week. And this is 1974, 75. And um, so, but you know what? It was actually great because it's like people who decide not to go college to college and they get a job roofing and they spend the first summer in 100 degrees up on the hot asphalt and they realize, holy crap, I do want to go to college. And so they go off and they work because they realize that's not what I want to do. Well, that's kind of what happened to me. And I got to the point where I, I kind of learned it all at the bottom uh, from the shipping to the uh, selling to the... But as I say, this guy was a crook. He would print, uh, he would sign a deal with the printer in New Hampshire, and it would be for 60-day billing. And, uh, oh, is that our theme show on the... Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, he would set up, I'm turning it off, I'm really sorry, people. Um, he would set it up for 60-day billing. So that means he's printing this issue now, and now he's going to bed with the second issue, and he still doesn't get the bill. Now the third issue comes out, 60 days away. He gets the bill for the first issue. He's printed now three issues with them, and now he's not late yet because he's got 60-day billing, so he's not 30 days overdue on that yet. So he's gotten the fourth issue on the press by the time he owes him the money for the first issue, and then he switches printers in a different state. So he's got the guy in Maine doing it. It's coming in in a truck. And of course, he was selling the advertisers. Oh, we're printing 100,000 copies. And he was printing 10,000 copies. So I learned a lot about scamming, but I also learned about what I didn't want to do. Because eh, my old man was a stock uh, investment counsel. And honesty and your word was your stock and trade. And that was good because this guy flamed out after a while. And once you tell too many lies to the same people, they be they figure it out, and after a while, uh, we went to a trade show uh, in uh, California and then Anaheim, and we fell in love with the whole California thing. And my brother was living in Santa Barbara, so we moved to Santa Barbara. And the music scene out there was exploding. However, um, it was exploding just as much still in the high schools. And while we were doing musicians' guide for the rock people. All these new technologies were coming out and they needed to be explained to the market because Joe Band Guy was just used to plugging his guitar into his amp. There were no synthesizers. There were no fuzz tones and pedals and wah-wahs. All this stuff was coming out, you know, and um, it had been on records like Jimi Hendrix had a wah-wah, but he invented that and his engineer buddy invented it. So it wasn't on the market yet. So suddenly all these technologies were hitting the um, market and that's why we were there to explain it. But meanwhile, while we were out in California, Mr. Scammer had me doing absolutely everything. He was staying home playing, selling stocks on cable networks. And um, my uh, eventual business partner was a waiter at the Santa Barbara Inn, Sam Holsworth, who is president of KPM Museum today. And he was a waiter, and I talked him into coming to work for us, and he was doing music store sales and packing and stamping with me. But then the guy was staying home doing his stock trades, and he moved over to be an editor, to the editor. Well, guess what? He was way better an editor than the other guy was, the, the crook guy. And so I was selling all the ads, selling all the dealers. And this guy, and our office was right 
straddled either side of the San Andreas Fault on State Street in Santa Barbara. It was absolutely the most terrifying thing. And when the little shocks would come in, you know, the little rumblers, you really could feel, I mean, literally your coffee was like Jurassic Park, you know, or boom, boom, and you saw the thing. And long story short, um, we got this phone call from art synthesizers and they said, hey, there's an educator's convention down in uh, LA. Why don't you come down and come see it? Because you should have an educational version of your magazine, Musician's Guide. Well, Sam and I went down there and we talked to all these educators and they were so excited about moving away from marching band and getting jazz and electronic instruments, guitars, synthesizers into music programs because they really weren't. It was all still marching band for football. And um, basically, we realized there was a market for this. And so, but if we gave the market to the, the idea of the other guy, he was just going to steal it. And we'd be doing both magazines while he stayed, stayed home. Um, so long story short, we decided, my mother had said, hey, come back to Colorado. I have a barn. You can start your business in the barn. Well, that sounded great. So we broke off and we started Music America magazine. And Music America magazine was for educators, except it was for students in the music programs too. But a lesson that we, and the educators loved it. And because a lot of them wanted to break free, especially the jazz people from marching band, because they couldn't even play jazz in the marching bands. They were all playing John Philip Sousa. So we had a certain interest. However, what happened, this is 1976, that suddenly that's when the plug got pulled on all the money in the uh, federal money in the music programs. It was easy money before. That's why the marching band companies were so fat. Every school had a marching band with 60 instruments that they bought, you know, and they had all these credit corporations and all that as part of their companies. But um, long story short, we got to the point where we realized, one thing we realized was talking to students and interviewing is that they didn't want a magazine aimed at them as students. If they were jazz students, they wanted downbeat. They wanted with the professionals. So when you did an article, how to get synthesizers into your school program, to them, that was condescending. And thinking back about it, it probably was. So we got to a point where we met this fabulous art director who had just come off working for New York Magazine and uh, in New York, but he'd gotten divorced, and so he had to get out of town, and he had to work for money under the table because otherwise his wife took more than half of the money. So he went to work for us, and suddenly we went from being pretty pedestrian graphics to being absolutely award-winning. And we changed our logo. In the meantime, we got sued by... And I'm going to put this in parenthesis. Our magazine got bought by Billboard in 1981. But in 1976, 77, Billboard, who had no idea who we were or that we would be a partner someday, sued us, threatened to sue us and said, Music America, we own Musical America, which is a supplement we do once a year in Billboard about opera. And we tried to claim there would be no confusion in the marketplace, but that we're both in the music magazine area and we were going to lose. And I remember years later when we were part of Billboard, and we can talk about that in a second, that's going to that lawyer, Mike Fireseed, and say, hey, Mike, do you remember uh, threatening us for music? And he goes, oh, yeah, that was you? And he goes, you know. Okay, you were pretty polite and pretty reasonable about it, he said to me. And I said, you know what? That's because so were you. Because the guy didn't bully me. He just explained why we were going to lose. And you know what? We Thank God we changed. Because Music America was the worst name. Instead, we changed to Musician. But you can't, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> Musician 1623. No, uh, you can't, you can't trademark a generic. 
So if we were musician, we can trademark a logo, but someone else could come in with Musician Magazine with a different logo. So we made it musician and right underneath player and listener. Well, we had by then gone to become a consumer magazine, and, but it, we had such a good editor, Sam Holsworth. He attracted the notice of all these writers that were Rolling Stone writers, industry writers who were never allowed to write about the music. They, a lot of them were forced to write Rolling Stone. It was all lifestyle articles. The stuff in the other uh, magazines were all buttons and dials pieces. So we were the first ones catering to the musicians and the music, not the sex life, not the, you know, the, the sweaty pink pictures. And so we began to get a lot of respect from readers. And suddenly we started selling a lot of magazines. We had a breakthrough interview. Our first one when we were school magazine was Herbie Hancock and VSOP. And that was pretty good because no one else had Herbie at the time. And he loved the, this writer who had done it. And the writer loved us. So he said, I'm going to bring this to you. So suddenly the record companies were aware of us. We started getting a few record ads. Suddenly the readers did. We started selling a few off newsstand. And all of a sudden we put out four issues in a row that were seminal, seminal, where Paul McCartney gave us a one-on-one -on -one interview in which, in which he said that there is a whole chest somewhere of Beatle tunes that were finished but vanished in the mists of time. If only I could find the chest, he said. Well, that was a breakthrough. And Columbia Records, who had them at the time, they were still called Columbia CBS at that point before Sony bought them. They made a record, a vinyl record. I should bring you a copy. I still have 20 of them. And it was for DJs around the country. These are 100,000 copies. And it was Paul talking. But there was one where one side was the interviewer's question and then Paul's answer. Or you could turn it over and just have Paul's answer. So you could ask the question. So you, the DJ, could be doing the phony interview, which was way more popular than our guys thing, but they had to credit musician. And they did. Suddenly we were on the map. Suddenly these writers for Rolling Stone were coming over to us, like Timothy White who eventually became one of their big-time editors. He actually left Rolling Stone to write for us and eventually became the publisher of Billboard. But all these guys, Chuck Young, these huge writers in the biz, who was the big guy who did the Springsteen book, Dave, whatever. But suddenly we started selling a lot of magazines. And also, because of the visibility of the record companies, Billboard magazine, suddenly, they, were in, they wanted to buy a consumer magazine. And they were looking around all these guitar player, guitar world, guitar, and they were going, none of these match us, or fit with us. Then the editor uh, of Billboard said, hey, how about this musician magazine? The rest is history. They wanted to buy it. Uh, and it was a family-owned company. And my partner was so clever. He said, we don't, you know, we negotiated the price, but he said, we don't want it all in cash. We want stock, too. And they said, well, we're privately held. We don't have stock. And he said, well, that's what we want. And then they conferred, and they gave, we were the first people to get Billboard stock, family-owned company. Well, the rest is history. We just started to catch on, and we started getting these interviews. I remember this one with the police, and there's a picture of Sting holding the cover going like this and sting quote best interview ever done and all this stuff and uh so we started catching on we're now part of billboard so we now have a lot more cachet with the advertisers and the readers and we got a big national distributor we haven't before but they ignored us now billboard's got eight titles they weren't ignoring us we could get placement we could get respect we could get we were part of a central circulation department where they call up and give uh whatever it's called icd so it's like international distributor corporation or something Curtis, you know, and they suddenly, they were huge, but we had 14 titles and whatever, how many titles. So we got respect. We got visibility. We got distribution. But more important, 
We had the editorial and we sold the crap out of it. Now, by this point, we were in Gloucester. We had moved here in 1977 um, because, long story short, but my grandma's house uh, was coming up for sale. It was worth almost nothing in Gloucester in those days. In 1971, it came up for sale, and then the bank was going to sell it, and the family said, well, does anybody in the family want it? And we were going, yes, we do. We grew up here. We want it. We can't please. We were never allowed to come. And the, <laughs> the great thing is, you know how law firms are, I don't want to say they're crooked, but, you know, they sometimes uh, pad the account. It took them eight years to settle the real estate for the estate. And there was a will. And yeah, money. They were getting a fee the whole time. Well, the great thing is they evaluated it in 1971 dollars. They didn't settle it till 79. So the price by then had gone through the freaking roof. But we got to pay the lower price because that's what it was on the date of death. So fortunately, and of course, nothing in Gloucester was, I mean, these houses on Eastern Point were selling for 20 grand. So it, I got my place for not that cheap, but something like that. So I was able to take out a mortgage and pay it off. But, you know, only 10 years later, it was times 10. You know, everything went nuts by 86. But the point is we were here in Gloucester and I was becoming a Gloucester citizen. And I just loved the whole lifestyle. We were up on Main Street every day, Kennedy's Deli. And we were eating all those old places. I can't even remember the names of them. But... They were all there, and, uh, you know, those days Gloucester was a lot simpler. There wasn't even a lick-a-locka back then. You know, it was all Moodus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I started also, um, you know, uh, had three kids here, and I was starting to – hadn't started to sail yet. I hadn't done that. But one year I did. I got taken out of this guy's boat, and, oh, my God, I got bit by the bug, and that, that was it. That was in 79. And then um, – so I also started writing for the paper in 82. Um, so the interesting thing, I only got five minutes left. So interesting thing is I'm nearing my thousandth column. And I started way before computer, so I don't have the first 400. I have 600 of them on my computer uh, that I've copied and flowed in from all the dead computers before. <laughs> you know, you put it on a thumb drive and move it over. So I have quite a few that I've done. And... Uh, you know, the interesting thing people have asked me, because um, today is um, 3 March 7th, 2018, for those of you keeping track. Well, if you are a reader of Gordon Baird's Fishtown Local Column, uh, you know, I'm humor, I'm politics, I'm serious, I'm funny, I'm stupid, I'm nostalgic, and often I put my foot in my mouth because I tell the truth. And one of the things, the truths I'm going to tell now is... Um, People have been asking me lately, Gordon, I haven't seen your, your column in the paper. Uh, have you stopped writing? And the answer is yes. Um, the answer is yes. I wrote a column called Big Freeze in Pigland that a lot of people saw and remembered. And I said, you know, when I finished that, I said, what a great column to go out on. And you might say, well, why were you interested in going out? Well, I discovered over the years that I am the only columnist in that paper not being paid. They don't pay a lot, 30, 40 bucks a throw, but they pay everybody else. They pay the how to make your dog beautiful. They pay the uh, psychological, mental health, good health uh, column. They pay that guy, trailer, Taylor M. Murding, who's just so right wing. They pay him, but they won't pay me. Well, I've been asking for about 10 years when I found out, and they never answer. 
They will never answer the question. You know, oh, we'll look into it. So, but they'll never get back to me. So I got to the point where I stopped asking and realized it's nice to have the soapbox. I enjoy walking down the street and people say, yeah, get him, Gordo, and all that stuff. As opposed to cable TV where, you know, I'll do 18 shows. It'll be all over the network. And then one person will say, I saw your show last night. You know, so I salute my viewers, <clears throat> both of them. Uh, <laughs> but... You know, I got to the point where I accepted that. And my wife, who's a writer, said, you know, you should consider it a comp, you know, an honor to have that soapbox because they obviously expect you to be there every week. And when I'm late, they say, where's the column and all that. But then um, through a mm, – suddenly the paper canceled our subscription by mistake. And it was a credit card snafu. It turned out there was no problem. But they had said to my wife, well, you've got to come in here and we straighten this out. And she said, I'm not coming in there. You know, let's just do it electronically. And because um, I don't know how friendly they were about it in the beginning. And uh, so basically our subscription dropped. Well, so did my columns about the town instead of us just writing about me. And so at that point, I, I put it in writing. I said, hey, how about a, a free electronic subscription so I can write columns for you free in Gloucester about politics and what's going on? No word. So I then made a phone call and left a message on the editor's personal thing. Hey, what do you say? And blah, blah, blah. And I was in the magbiz. I know what it costs to give an electronic subscription. It's about a quarter a year. That's 25 cents. I don't want paper. I don't need anything else. You're throwing me in there with 15,000 other people that go beep on a one little thing. It's not even 25 cents a year to cost. So at this point, I ask, come on, that's fair. I mean, you know, let me save face, okay? And nothing. Not a thing. No answer to the email. No answer. And it got to the point where I said, okay, I'm going to take my lesson from the editors and that publisher because that publisher thinks nothing of me. And let's just say that the disrespect I have felt is deafening because to not even get back to me, no, we can't afford the 25 cents a year to give you a free subscription. It was a face saver only. And also, don't you want me writing about current events? And so I decided to take the lesson from them. And since they had completely not a single echo when I went, hello, not a word, I decided to play their game and basically do nothing and just say, fine, I don't want to burn the bridge. I like writing. But really, haven't I said pretty much after a thousand columns, aren't people kind of sick of that subject? I've already done that six times. You know, the best burger in Gloucester column. How, you know, how often can you do that one? You know, and... I do want the right to be able to write about things when outrageous things happen, like people try to build on the back shore on the ocean side. You've got to be able to step in. And I feel that mine is a voice that is not in Gloucester because, as people say, only you would ever have the nerve to say that. That's because I got – I'm stupid, and I, I lead with my chin. But most important, I don't do business in Gloucester. I don't have some kind of money interest where people can't really say the truth because they all have a dog in the fight or they have a job at the paper or at Gordon's or somewhere where they can't really tell the truth. They can't tell the truth about, you know, what happened to Fuller School? What happened to the charter school? What, you know, what's going on with, uh, with Lenny, the old police chief? I mean, who asked those questions but Gordon Baird? But clearly, the paper does not respect that. And at that point, I got – so I love the paper. I love Gloucester. But I have uh, – how do I put this? A little bit of self-respect left. And at some point, I think, you know, you don't have to give me 30 ducks, 30 ducks, 30 bucks a throw as you give every other writer. 
Just give me like a two 24 cent a year subscription divided by 50, that's half a cent a column. Well, I'm not even worth that. So I'm not worth less. I'm not worthless. I'm worth nothing. So what would you do? I asked Jimbo, my engineer, and I ask my listeners here. What would you do if you were me? I would wait. Yeah, until they say what's going on. Because they haven't even asked me what's going on. It's been six, eight weeks. So at that point, shows you what I was worth to them. So I'm sorry, Gloucester, if you miss my columns. I miss you. I miss your eyeballs. And uh, um, someday, hope to be back. And uh, in fact, with this uh, podcast, someday I hope to be back because we have now reached the end of our half hour. In fact, I've gone over. So you know me, I'm always going over. So I want to thank Jim Capillo for listening for this boring sack of personal sob stories and urge you all to write the paper and say, where's Gardo? And to see you next time on Fishtown Local. Go get him.